When it comes to your finances, go for the credit card that's always there for you. With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. Real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. So why do you want to learn a new language? I'll tell you why. Because donde esta el baño can be a very important question at times. You know, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. Fast track your language acquisition with immersive lessons designed to teach you to pick up languages in a natural way. I love the fact that I can go from my laptop to my phone to pretty much anywhere and learn the language of my choice. Not to mention I'm bringing my communication skills to new heights. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash StarTalk. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash StarTalk today. Welcome to Star Talk, your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide. Star Talk begins right now. This is Star Talk. This is the Halloween show. Chuck, always good to have you there, co-host. Always a pleasure. Uh, Stand-up comedian and actor. Actor. Acting like a comedian. Act- oh, is that yep. what that was? Okay. Yes, it is. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about zombies, but in a more sort of analytic scientific context. We're going to talk about ghosts. We're going to talk about reanimating putrefied life. <laughs> is that it? Or, or just dead life, right? If that mm. phrase can ever even be uttered, such as what? My Lord, by now he stinketh. <laughs> <laughs> A little Lazarus reference there. Oh, is that what that was? Okay. All yeah. Right. Yeah. The, you know, that's... Well, of course, I... I think that... I think Jesus made the first zombie, and people don't even realize... Nope. Oh, my God. He doesn't get credit for oh that. Oh, my God. Jesus made the first zombie. Chuck... Lazarus. You, you nailed that one. There it is. Yep. There it is. And, <laughs> um, and that was before he became a zombie himself. Uh, well, there you go. Right. He was spotted in town after he rose from the dead. Send send your letters to Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> Chuck Nice did not call Jesus a zombie. Okay. <laughs> so, so anyhow, I, neither you nor I have any expertise in this field. So we're, right. we're we have two guests. We're going to start off with one first, uh, David Andrejevich. I think did I pronounce your name right, David? Close enough. Close enough. Thank you for close having enough. me, Andrejevich. <laughs> Andreevich. Yes, Andreevich. actually, this was this was spot on. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, Andreevich. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, you're associate research scientist in neuroscience at the Yale School of Medicine. So you're coming wow. to us from, I presume, New Haven, Connecticut. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And you co-authored a recent study, and you managed to restore key cellular functions in the cells of a pig that had been dead for an hour. Wow. Whoa. Okay. Frankenstein pig is what that is. Okay. Franken pig. Franken pig. <laughs> but uh, did it have electrodes and like, you know, a Tesla Does coil have, and have bolts in its neck? I know bolts in its neck. No. You have to throw your arms up and say, it is alive. <laughs> no. yeah. And then right afterwards you go, it's alive. <laughs> it's now bacon. <laughs> it's not bacon. Yeah, no, I, right. yeah I need to dis- disappoint you there. Uh, unfortunately. Yeah, please straighten us out. I mean, we, yeah. our, you know, our imagination was just flying there. So what did you actually do, please? Yeah, so it didn't look uh, as cool as you described, Tal. Uh, it's basically what we've done is we developed this technology that is capable of restoring certain cellular functions one hour after the pigs, as you said. And how 
we achieved that is basically um, and actually how what like what uh, makes this technology uh, possible is two components. So one is a machine perfusion device, which is similar to those uh, heart and lung machines that you uh, hear about in clinics, uh, sometimes called ECMO machines, or which stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. Mm -hmm. I was going to say that. I knew that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <Duh. laughs> okay, go on. Yeah, it's basically uh -huh. like a, a heart and lung machine, right? And then uh, we also have, we also made the synthetic perfusate, which is something, uh, sort of a synthetic blood, which we mixed with animal's blood and restored the circulation first in order to achieve uh, this kind of bringing cells uh healthy again, making cells healthy again, and so on. So, so you, 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 you kind of created some blood, created a blood flow, exactly. sent oxygen to cells, and thereby revived the cells themselves because that's what they need. You kind of fed them, and then they, they kind of came back exactly. to Exactly. That's the key. So the key was to restore the circulation, of course, and we, for, for, for that, we needed a machine. And then... Also, we developed this solution that has a lot of different components. For example, it has like lots of vitamins, amino acids. It has the it's the chemistry. Uh, you yes. get good chemistry going. Yes, on exactly. Like okay. a drug cocktail, an oxygen carrier, and so on. And however, to, to reach out to those cells uh, to restore their function, uh, basically, uh, we needed the machine. So they work together to achieve our goal. Wait a minute, David. Are you saying you did not use bolts of electricity? Unfor on, yeah, unfortunately. Not. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> well, and the next time you next time you do it, just fake the electricity. Fake the electricity. <laughs> just fake it, man, so that we can because we need that. Yeah, we need it. You know, we gotta have that. You know, and also make sure that the roof of wherever you are opens up <laughs> and that there's there's a table that rises up. and the moonlight you gotta have this stuff yeah, yeah you need yeah, the moonlight and the, the rising table i forgot about you that the, chuck yeah you need the rising table you need the moonlight coming you need all that <laughs> and do it at night all right yeah exactly <laughs> so the term we've heard is reanimation is that a fair fair term for this what you're doing so i would uh we did because we focused on the cellular level so reanimation usually refers to like other other uh, layers uh, layers or levels of, uh, of of function, like a whole organism functioning. So since we focus just on the cellular level, we 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 wrote it like that. So we said we mentioned oh we're restoring certain cellular functions and so on. So we wanted to keep it conservative because I know that we knew that everybody would think about zombie pigs immediately. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay, uh, so, yeah. so this brings the question. Uh, uh, an hour is sort of a nice convenient amount of time rather than just one minute or five minutes. You know, we right. all know people have been dead or it's heart stopped for that time and you, you zap them back to life. So how much thought went into it being an hour as opposed to three hours, six hours, 12 hours okay. a day? Yeah. yeah what, what, what sets your limits there? And... What is the level of cellular degradation at an hour? Yeah, that allows that 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 says, oh, we did something. Yeah. So that's those are both uh, good questions. I mean, like one hour just sounds sounds as you mentioned. It's it's really has a lots of implications if we can achieve it at, at that one hour. And also, what we have uh, discovered before in our lab, and also with this study confirmed, is that like when cells uh, are die, it's not like an instantaneous event. It's like a more protracted series of events. And because of that, there's this like time window in which we can intervene, uh, stop that process, and restore the cellular function. Not to put a word in your mouth, but what you're saying is that the act of dying and death is itself a continuum. It's yes. On the cellular level, definitely it is. Uh, wow. It's from my perspective, yes. 
But see, that's that's amazing. It's amazing because, because we, we 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 think yeah. in binary terms: you're either alive or you're dead, or dead, right? You're not right. one third alive and two thirds <laughs> dead. So this could yeah. change the vocabulary. This could change people's awareness of what all this is about. I'm on the death spectrum. <laughs> on the death spectrum, <laughs> Chuck. <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Chuck. <laughs> okay. So so what this tells me is what you hinted at is different parts of the cell may die different, sooner than other parts. And so the cocktail you feed it, mm -hmm. uh, plus the electricity just for show, the cocktail you feed it um, will have to know, you have to know what part of the cell needs reinvigorating at what time after death. And that would presumably mm. change as the minutes go by. Yes, yes. So also like uh, now science knows there's just not one way for cell to die. There are so many different uh, uh, processes that can happen and cells can die in different ways. So basically what we have tried to achieve, besides of course restoring this like environment for the cell uh, to be healthy again and to restore its function, uh, we also uh, wanted to inhibit or stop these different processes. And this is what we targeted with our uh, drug cocktail. So what, what are they, I mean, I'm just trying to think of practical mm -hmm. applications it, when this, let's say, is fully developed. Is this something where I kind of don't have oxygen going to my brain for a long time, and instead of being brain dead, you're able to help me not be that? Yeah, I guess or, what were the limits of this? Yeah, so, we yeah, see where yeah. it's starting. Where can you take it? So I think like, well, brain is most susceptible to ischemia, to, to, to loss of blood flow, and and is being notorious for that. Uh, however, some other... Just that word you used? I like that word, ischemia? Uh, ischemia. It's like... Uh, ischemia. Uh, yeah, loss of blood flow, essentially. Okay, thank you. Thank and, you, that's a word. Good. Uh, and uh, so what what happens, like, we're at the moment not sure how it will reflect all the other organs and you know, like what the future will bring us. But we hope that at least we can restore... Uh, these vital organs such as kidney, liver, heart, lungs, pancreas even, that we have tested uh, in, our, in our study and that we can, by doing so, increase organ donor pool and use these organs for transplant. Oh, wow. So for, for, wow. Like to go that far and, and talk about brain recovery and so on, we're kind of not we're not sure to which extent brain can recover still because it's extremely susceptible to ischemia, but maybe gotcha. some other organs might work. So we just hope wow, so that this will increase the organ or pool, basically. Well, no, you could end up saving so many lives because you're extending the life of an organ. Exactly. Right. So that gives it that gives it more time to reach the the person who needs exactly. it. Right. But but I have a, wow. a question though. If if I can get what you're saying with regard to the cell. Mm -hmm. But an organ is a collection of countless cells all acting in some harmonious way. And that's mm. not what you're... You're not bringing the organ back to life. You're bringing a, a cell back to life. How, does, how do you bring the organ itself back to life? Or do all the cells say, hey, let's just pick up where we left <laughs> off? Well, yeah. Then mm. Enter, enter. The electricity in the bolts. Yes. <laughs> we'll get there, Chuck. Maybe. We're trying to get there. <laughs> maybe, maybe that was the ingredient that we needed there. Uh-huh. <laughs> because we want so uh, a cell so this was all like uh like more of a proof of concept study. So we wanted to show whether we can even do that or not after one hour. So and of course we were we weren't even expecting this to happen. So yet alone seeing the whole organ functioning again. But uh, in order to whole organ function again, we, we at least we need a cell function again, then maybe a tissue function, and then uh, a whole organ function where all the cells are communicating together, doing their functions like a concert, and so on. So maybe eventually we'll come to that point. Gotcha. All right. So you're, you're using a machine to, to tell the cell what to do. So then why couldn't you extend it to kind of let the machine kind of be like an endocrine, you know, uh, traffic cop and tell the whole organ what to do? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Uh, <laughs> well, basically, we, we kind of uh, limited ourselves to, to six hours uh, because that was, 
we had some experience from our, some previous work in our lab and also wanted to see whether like it's more, it was more of a yes or no question at that point. So whether we can see uh-huh. that or not. And then now when we know, okay, we can see that, okay, now it's actually uh, a next uh, next step. So for example, exactly this, uh, we are trying to do two things at once. Uh, we are trying to do two things at once in the future. One is, of course, to maybe prolong this perfusion time, maybe to like 24 hours or even longer. And then the other aspect would definitely be uh, to even transplant these organs to other animals and then see whether, like to which extent this organ has recovered in its function. Wow. Now your background is in neuroscience, uh, but this feels, not to put divide, dividing lines everywhere, but this feels more like sort of cell biology. So where does your neuroscience training uh, help feed what's going on here? So that's a, <laughs> that's a question of all the questions. Well, uh, I was fortunate enough, so I went to med school before, and then I joined the lab uh, 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 as a neuroscientist. And then this whole technology started in a brain before. And then, uh, so this lab, actually, our lab uh, 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 published a study back in 2019 showing that it can restore certain cellular functions in the brain after, after prolonged ischemia or loss of blood flow. And then after that, uh, everybody was just uh, excited about the findings. And uh, my, my so Dr. Shes and my boss phone couldn't uh, stop ringing because everyone from a different perspective would call him and, and would ask him like, oh, have you tried this on the liver? Have you tried this on the heart or on the kidney and so on? So what he decided to do is uh, he decided to do like a shotgun approach. Like, let's see whether this can work on every organ at once. And so I was fortunate enough to be at that. Uh, that was the time when I joined the lab, and because of my background and also in medicine, so he uh, he thought that I would be a good person to lead this project. Mm. Wow! Mm. And, okay. and so, is there a, is there an ethical component of what you're doing where you bring in maybe a bioethicist to to look over your shoulder and advise on where this is or can go? Yes, yeah, I'm. I'm glad that you mentioned that. So, the whole study was being uh, uh, like overseen by two committees. So one was, of course, Yale's Institutional Animal Care News Committee, and also we had an external advisory committee to help us plan uh, the experiments, to help us uh, like the, the like develop the anesthesia protocol, so people, so animals would not uh, be in distress and so on. And also to use the, the least number of animals possible for this study. And of course, uh, we, uh, in our, in our, one of the authors of our manuscript is a bioethicist, Stephen Layton, from, from Yale as well. Okay, so, so yeah, we got, we got mm. you covered on that end. That's yes, good. Yes, yes, Because, you know, uh, because I'm, I'm pretty sure you can tell us during the break, which we're going to have to take in just a minute, uh, how many zombies you stored in the basement? We won't tell anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just you can save that for the break. <laughs> but, uh, I got one yeah. last question here. Is there any sort of key chemical ingredient that seems to be the most important, or is it such a cocktail that it's really the full mixture of them? Yeah, yeah unfortunately, we would also like to know the answers to that question, uh, so we can we can you know uh, sell it on the market. I, I know I'm joking. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's 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 the it's the it's everything all together uh, that we think it's what makes the difference. So it's also okay. for, for us, we have, we are constantly asking uh, ourselves a question like, can we somehow estimate which drug is doing, you know, percentage wise, you know, if exactly. this drug is like 50, you have to model that. 20, yes. but there is just yes. impossible. There's so many different compounds. And also when you're doing experiments, we're doing one experiment per day. And so it will literally take us a, like years and years to uh, to even evaluate to to control all the variables. Yes, right, exactly. Right, it's just course. like it's it's too complex, too many variables. Wow. So a- after the experiment, um, did the pig have a taste for brains? <laughs> <laughs> did Frankenstein didn't eat brains? Did he? No, 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 no. <laughs> but I'll tell you this: just since we are Halloween here, uh, uh, pigs. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a full-grown sort of hog has organs approximately the size of that of humans, right? So they make very good sort of human substitutes in these kinds of studies. Yes. You would do this for a pig rather than a mouse because 
for for just that reason. Is that is that correct? Yes, absolutely. There's the there's the reason why. So, David, thanks for this bit of insight and a, and some exposure to your work here. We will monitor that space and maybe bring you back when you actually finally do come to your senses and use electrodes. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. So, do I call you Professor or Dr. Uh, Andreevich? Uh, just David. David is fine. <laughs> no, David, okay. <laughs> That's how we like makes it, it here, actually, yeah, because yeah, it everything simple. else is a, is a barrier between the audience and what we're trying to tell them. All right, so David, we're going to say goodbye to you, and maybe we'll bring you back in the third segment when we're just sort of chewing the fat on this. Uh, but thank you for contributing your expertise to this episode of Star Talk. You're welcome. Happy to be here. All right. So we learned you can restore and reanimate individual cells and possibly even whole organs. But what about restoring your consciousness? Mm. What is consciousness? Is it something mm. that can be restored? And what, what's the latest on that? What a mystery mm. consciousness has always been and may continue to be. When we come back, consciousness expert George Mouchoir after the break. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the US on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx ground is faster to more locations than UPS ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Chris Cohen from Haworth, New Jersey, and I support Star Talk on Patreon. Please enjoy this episode of Star Talk Radio with your and my favorite personal astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. We're back. Star Talk, the Halloween edition. I got Chuck Nice with me, Chuck. Hey. All right. So we learned about reanimating cell functions after they've been yeah. dead for an hour and even organs that the cells comprise. And what about sort of reanimating consciousness? Well, we can take that to its most basic level. Because, Chuck, when you go under anesthesia, are you mm -hmm. conscious? Right. And then when anesthesia Neil? wears off, then you sort of wake. You're not asleep. Right. Neil? Yeah. I am not conscious right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
We'll get in line and talk to our expert about that one. We've got George Mouchoir. George is the Robert Sweet Professor and Chair of Anesthesiology at University of Michigan Ooh. Medical School. And Ooh. wait a minute. This man is also the director of the Michigan Psychedelic Center. Ooh, we know which decade he went to college in. <laughs> Sounds like a guy I want to be friends with. We know when this, <laughs> this man went to school. Uh, and founder of the Center for Consciousness Science. I love it. What a frontier consciousness is on every level, from, from humans to computers to aliens, yeah. other animals, yeah. plants, yeah. right? Yeah. So, Oh, please, not plants. Well, you know, the mycelium is that people want to live in that Oh, yeah, that's that right. Yeah, so that's, that's right. another show. That's right. So, George, yeah. welcome to Star Talk. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so, so tell me, what is, what is a clinical definition of consciousness versus unconsciousness? Just, just, just so we're on the same page here. Yeah, that's such a great question. It's actually a really big question because consciousness, by definition, is subjective, and yet... All of our determinations about consciousness and other people and other species uh, relates to behavior. And we make inferences based on our responsiveness. Um, and in the clinical setting, really, it, it's about following commands. It's about responsiveness. It's about interactivity. And most of the time that works, sometimes we can be led astray by making inferences that somebody who's unresponsive is actually unconscious. That sounds more like awareness because like you say you're unconscious when you sleep, but you're dreaming, your heart is beating, you're, yeah, yeah. you know. The brain is yeah. still lit. In a, in the a, brain in, is still lit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so during general anesthesia, there's actually a lot of brain function that is preserved. I mean, you're still controlling a lot of autonomic functions. There's still uh, activity going on in your primary sensory cortices, connectivity, representation. Anesthesia is probably more about the higher order integration uh, that brings together all of this processing to create that emergent property of subjectivity that we're experiencing right now. So how, did, how does this connect to, uh, we read about in their movies that try to talk about near-death experiences where if I can recount what people say they are, they're sort of clinically dead in some way, their heart stopped. Mm. And I don't know that this always includes being brain dead, but certainly the heart has stopped and then they're brought back. And then they give a whole story of where they went, where they visited, what light in the sky they looked there at. It was a big white light. Right. It was huge. It was so bright, but yet... It did not hurt my eyes. Oh, and and, and, and yeah, they're me. on an operating table where there are lights above <laughs> looking down. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so what's, what's going on during what we think of as NDEs? Yeah, great question. And it's a great example of where somebody who is behaviorally quiescent, they're not doing anything, is actually having this really rich, vivid phenomenology that can transform their lives. And... Actually, it, uh, it's interesting. It gets back to that question of the electricity uh, that you were discussing with your, your previous guest, because what has been identified in dying humans and also in some very well-controlled animal studies is that around the time of death, there's actually a surge of electrical activity that goes on the brain. This surge can actually be coherent and well-organized. And it's being explored as a neurobiological basis for the near-death experience. Wow. Is this also, my whole life unfolded in front of me right before I did yeah. that kind of thing? Is that? Yes. I mean, I it's, about to ask um, you know, there's still a, a big bridge uh, to be crossed between that neurobiology and some of the phenomenology that you're referring to. And th these are uh, really characteristic descriptions that go back to antiquity, seeing the tunnel, the light the life right. recall. Um, so lots right. to do in terms of bridging that gap. But I think uh, what has occurred in the past decade or so uh, is uh, a progress in terms of understanding that there can be a neurobiology to this. There can be neural correlates of consciousness around the time of death. So that takes it out of the metaphysical or supernatural realm into the neuroscientific realm. Is it possible because... Our brains are just liars. I mean, anybody who, I mean, whatever you think you saw, you most likely didn't. And we're really malleable and, and very easily influenced. Is it possible that 
people have these very similar experiences because they've heard that people have these very similar experiences. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yes. uh, it's a great question. You know, whether or not this um, kind of folk psychology or common mythology around death gets yeah, transmitted and, yeah. and people yeah. report yeah. that. But actually, this is, this is where the, the science uh, is, is quite helpful. And when I, with my colleague, Jimo Borshigan here at the University of Michigan, published an article almost 10 years ago in animals showing that there were neural correlates of consciousness after experimentally induced cardiac arrest or respiratory arrest. There are a lot of people who had near-death experiences who reached out to thank us because they felt like that neurobiology actually helped validate their experience. So is it possible that there is some psychological influence? It is. Uh, but I do think that there is an emerging consensus that there there might be some clear neurobiology that's going on around the time of death. Because wow. we're, all, we're all the same species. So you'd expect some common reaction to common causes. Is that, that's where you're going there, right? right? And it occurs across species too. So we're seeing very similar wow. findings in rodents that we are in humans in terms of that surge of high-frequency activity. So, so what can you set a time limit to how long a brain can be, quote, brain dead before it gets reanimated so that you could, you know, tell us that the Frankenstein brain abby normal in the jar <laughs> off the shelf in formaldehyde that is it just that we don't know how to reanimate it? Or can you say it can never be reanimated based on everything we know about physiology? So first of all, I want to make a distinction between what some people refer to as clinically dead, which is primarily from the cardiovascular perspective. So the heart is stopped with brain death, which is a cessation of all brain function, both cortical and subcortical brainstem activity. So I think what we're wow. talking about in the context of the near-death experience um, is that cardiovascular death where you do have residual activity. Um, again, uh, it's a spectrum and it's a process. Uh, so it's, it's not clear to me what the, the timing is. This is extremely difficult to study. We see the surge of activity in animals at around 30 seconds uh, after cardiac arrest. And afterwards, you do get that uh, quiescence of, of brain activity. Uh, but this is happening on, on both sides of the divide, if you will. It's happening across the spectrum. So in these critical care patients, you're seeing the spikes of activity prior to death. And there are other examples, for example, uh, terminal lucidity, which is where Alzheimer's patients, for example, um, who have been non-communicative for years suddenly start to become lucid. They start to interact right before their death. So we think that there's a spectrum of that brain activation that's going on, but but the the temporal window has yet to be defined. But wait a minute. If you know that happens, that in principle is reproducible. Yes. Whatever is going on right. to reanimate the the severe Alzheimer's patient, mm -hmm. you this is we're talking about science here, right? So whatever that is, you duplicate it and then put it in a pill and then let everybody take it. Right. Right. Absolutely. And and I worked with a group uh, from the National Institute of Health to make that claim that these examples of terminal lucidity really represent an opportunity to understand that neurobiology, that it's not just structural degeneration, there's some functional component. And if we can bottle that, if you will, understand it, reproduce it, it could be a pathway toward reanimating cognition uh, and communication. That's amazing. By the way, uh, Alzheimer's, terrible, terrible disease. Grandfather died of it. And uh, uh, what it taught me is that every single thing that you do uh, your brain is, how can I put it, conscious that you are doing it. When you swallow, you think it's involuntary. Your brain doesn't think that's involuntary. Your brain is actually saying, swallow. And it's crazy when you watch somebody lose every single bodily function uh, because... It's sequence. It's, it's, some kind of, yeah. it's yes. sequence. Right, Thank right, you. Right. Yes. One by yeah. one. It's crazy. It's crazy. Right, right, right. 
so George, let's let's get back to consciousness for the moment. Now that you've basically admitted that combined with our first segment, we can make conscious zombies. That's really what you just said. I'm pretty sure. Um, but what what is there agreement on what consciousness is? I guess people can define it, but the fact that books are continually written about it tells me we know very little. Because once you understand scientifically a subject, you don't have to keep writing books on it to say consciousness explained or new discoveries. So I, I, th I think to myself that consciousness studies is still kind of in its infancy because of this. Am I wrong? And, and that's why you're conscious, because you think, therefore you are. Thank you, Chuck, for, for that. <laughs> you are uh, correct, Neil. This, this actually is a fairly young science. And even if you, know, you think back historically, consciousness as a subject of scientific study was really delegitimized for most of the 20th century. So it's, hmm. it's the 1990s, the mid-1990s, when this formal study of consciousness started to emerge. And decades later, we're still asking fundamental questions. For example, right. are right. the neural correlates of consciousness in the front of the brain or in the back of the brain? And, and this is, that's coming up in titles in neuroscientific journals. I'm not exaggerating the coarseness mm -hmm. of that. So for as much as we've learned about how to manipulate neural circuitry uh, over the past decades, there's still some really fundamental questions in terms of where consciousness is happening or processed in the brain. And an issue I have, an issue I have is uh, in physics, you know, quantum physics is a is a fundamental branch of the field. Uh, but there are mysterious things that happen that we can describe with high accuracy, but we don't really understand what the hell is happening. You know, particles disappear and reappear, and we can describe it. We know what they're doing mathematically, but can you say, do you understand it? Nope, that's just how nature behaves. What concerns me is I see people trying to apply the mysteries of quantum physics to the mysteries of consciousness as though taking our ignorance in one place somehow helps the ignorance in the other rather than making it just doubly ignorant. That's just mm, my opinion. Works for me. Yeah, no, really interesting, Neil. And, uh, you know, since it's a Halloween theme, we can talk about spooky action at a distance because one of the, one of the theories within that quantum realm is that uh, the, the kind of integration that needs to go on for conscious experience to happen is mediated by a quantum process or quantum entanglement. Um, and the, the argument has been, as, as you just very well described, that just because one thing has a, a similar kind of mysterious quality as another doesn't mean uh, that they should be connected. Now, we've actually studied uh, this in the context of anesthesia because some people have posited that anesthetics work by disrupting this quantum interaction. Uh, and we could talk about it if you want, but the long and short of it is we uh, applied um, general anesthetics, liquid ether, to uh, photons, both classical and entangled. And I'm not a quantum physicist. I'm not going to pretend like I am, but people are st starting to uh, address this empirically so we can either move forward or, or just leave that discourse behind. Now, I know that Roger Penrose, a very famous decorated uh, physicist, astrophysicist, has stepped into the consciousness realm. But let me remind people, by, by invoking quantum uh, causes for so much of what's described, but allow me to say in this moment that his Nobel Prize, granted just a couple of years ago, was for black holes, not for consciousness. Or mm. so, just to be clear, yes, right, what's yes. going on there? Right. Yes, and he he was part of that wave in the 1990s, and his his work, you know, uh, really stimulated that line of thinking. Yeah, and I think we shouldn't ignore it, but just I I don't like explaining things with things I don't yet understand. That that's All that's right. that never yeah. sat well. You have with to me. approach Chuck. it empirically. Yeah, exactly. Chuck, what? So if you're looking for, you know, whether, uh, you know, you're looking at the, a, a place in the brain that houses consciousness, we know that the brain itself does house consciousness. And uh, whether it's just these electrical, you know, impulses that are firing all the time, and when that electricity is plug is pulled, we're gone, or something else, could you take it and put it someplace else if you were to find it 
and locate it. That sounds like something for the next segment, Chuck. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> what you're talking about, <laughs> uploading your consciousness. That the people, I, I, yeah, kind yeah. of what you just said there. Big question, right? Is there something special about this neurobiological substrate? Or is this just about functional relationships of electrochemical activity that could be reproduced in a non-biological context? So, and we're going to get to that in the next segment. Let's take a break now. <laughs> and when we return on our Halloween edition, we're talking about reanimating cells, reanimating consciousness, um, zombies, Frankenstein, and uh, we're going to have to throw in ghosts somehow in this third segment, just to just to round out the Halloween experience. You're watching, possibly listening to Star Talk. We'll be right back. We're back on Star Talk, our third and final segment of our Halloween edition. We're talking about reanimating dead cells that's actually been done and accomplished in a lab in New Haven and at Yale. And we're talking about uh, consciousness, its existence, its absence, reanimating it uh, with an anesthesiologist. So first, uh, David Andrejevich, thanks for coming back to the show for this third and final segment. And we've got George Mushur, uh, who is, George, let me uh, correct me with, I'm wrong with your full title here, a chair of anesthesiology, University of Michigan Medical School, and founding director of the Michigan Psychedelic Center. We didn't even touch that subject yet, perhaps. But let's, let's pick up where we left off. Uh, there was a question, Chuck, what was, your, what was that question where you left us? Oh. oh, I'm just saying, if you can locate it, can you take it and place it someplace else? Put, put, your consciousness. put your consciousness somewhere other than yourself. I love that question. So, George, what do you have there? I don't have anything. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know Very good. Again, that's it's the best answer ever. <laughs> best answer. Yeah. That, uh, that's about as honest as you can get. I, I have to be honest because, you know, really it's a foundational question as to whether or not consciousness is purely neurobiological or is, is it functional? And, and functionalism is a, you know, one approach to thinking about consciousness, which is, this is about the characteristics of a system, not necessarily a set of neural systems. But I think the, you know, the, the first approach is we have to understand it better in humans who can report their conscious experience before we start thinking about how it gets reproduced elsewhere. Of course, because if you don't, if you can't, if you don't really understand it in humans to then say, let's upload it somewhere, that doesn't mean make any sense. But right. I, I will add, I, did you not, uh, George, did you not, in different words, speak of what evolutionary biologists call emergence in evolution, where you can study a bird down to the cellular level and you will never know that birds together will flock. That information is not contained in the cellular biology of the bird. It's only a collective emergent phenomenon. So that if you can't identify consciousness as in the behavior of cells, could it be emergent in the ensemble of the behavior of cells that comprise the entire brain? Ooh. Yeah, Neil, that, I mean, that's my inclination and that's uh, my perspective. Not everybody shares it, but I do think this is more of a network level dynamic and a network level emergence of subjective experience. And I think that speaks directly to the question of Reanimation, regeneration. If, you, if you're, and, and we think about it even in the operating room, we're reanimating from the anesthetized state. That, you know, that is a process of, of reconnection and reemergence. In fact, we call it emergence yeah. from anesthesia. You do. Okay. So, yeah. But if the sum of the parts is greater than or even different than the individual parts, how, how do you, how do you find it? How, like, what, what are you able to do? Maybe that very question uh, to, is wrong, right? Like, how do you find the flock, the flocking in a bird? You can't, right? Maybe, right. maybe the very question is flawed. Just, right, just, yeah. Just, just saying. I mean, we try to ex approach that experimentally by various measures of integration in brain function, uh, such as connectivity, um, and, and how the electrical activities relate to one another to, to try to grasp that. We, we do dynamic analyses, but yes, it, it is, uh, 
it's a difficult question, but I would agree that consciousness is not going to be found at an individual cellular level. It's going to be at a systems level. So I got a question mm. connecting back to George here, because when you anesthetize someone, they can no longer feel pain. There's a lot of their body that has shut down. Uh, other parts still work. Of course, the heart still beats. So how is it that your anesthesia can do what the suite of things you need it to do, but not shut down George's organs that he would otherwise try to animate that would otherwise be non-functioning? Yes. So, I mean, if you turn the anesthetic high enough, you can shut down the organs. There's no doubt about that. At the concentrations that we use to suppress consciousness, I really do believe it's a kind of uh, disassembly of that emergence uh, process. You're, you're creating inhospitable conditions for the emergence to occur, for the connection, for the communication to occur. So in the brain, you can still have local areas that are functioning in meaningful ways, even representing the environment. And we've tested that empirically. But it's that higher order synthesis that seems to be disrupted. Interesting. And just to clarify something yeah. you mentioned earlier, just to throw a little more physics in the conversation, the, the whole idea of a quantum entanglement, by the way, anything on the level of atoms and molecules and, and the deep chemistry that goes on among them is quantum. The quantum forces are operating all throughout. So quantum entanglement is you have two particles that know about each other's existence from separated by a distance, and then something can happen in one where the other one responds instantaneously to it because they're entangled. And instant, not faster than the speed of light. It's an instantaneous, uh, in the in the lingo of quantum physics, instantaneous collapse of the wave function because the two particles share the same wave, essentially. And so mm. if consciousness goes beyond just a local spot in the brain and it really surfs quantum phenomenon, then maybe quantum entanglement really matters. And that's that's just a frontier. Huh? Just wanted to clarify the all Vul that. The Vulcan mind meld. Oh! The Vulcan oh! mind meld. It can happen. It can happen. The Vulcan mind melt is a is a quantum entanglement. Oh my god! Right, you heard it here, people. There you go, people. <laughs> <laughs> so, so George, can you reanimate a brain? Do you think? Not now. Just at some at point. Some... Do you think? <laughs> well, like we know. <laughs> yeah, David comes to you and said the brain dead. They, they drag him right. off the table, and he said, "No, I got this. I got this. Put him on my slab." And I, and I got this. Yeah. Well, uh, again, I don't know the answer, but the question really is going to be, you know, what is, re what is reanimated? Are we reanimating oh. cells uh, that are functioning in independent ways? And this gets back to the, the organ uh, recovery. Or right, are we going to be able challenge. to... Yeah, right. are we, yeah, absolutely. Are, and I think it's even more pertinent for the brain. Are we going to be reanimating that network-level emergent phenomenon uh, that is manifest to us as consciousness. And I think those, mm -hmm. those answers are going to be distinct. But so, so David, wow. how much of what you do is, I mean, I have to think at some level, there's some electrochemical things happening. That's how we, we're, we're taught about the brain, right? It's not just chemicals. There's like, a, there's synapses, uh, you know, why else would electric shock therapy work, you know? So right. uh, is there no electrochemistry going on when you reanimate shell, cells, even if it's just the chemistry that you introduce? So, no, unfortunately not, <laughs> again. But I would say, uh, so we kind of restored the, the environment of the cells and actually we targeted their functions because they were, they were in that process of dying. But maybe in the future, like if you want to restore the whole function of the of the whole organ, we might do something like that. Like for example, in the heart, we have seen also in our study that we there is a restoration of each heart cells uh, cell individual called cardiomyocyte. Actually, it, they contract. We can see that if you take a tissue, uh, tissue of the of the of the heart to look at under the microscope, we can see they're they're contracting. However, in order to heart to function properly, you need them to to 
communicate together and actually have that heart chambers contract uh, in like in like a coherent way. Yes, yes coherent. Yeah, so yeah, similar yeah. thing yes. is in the brain. You you can have a, a single neuron or brain cell firing, but in order to actually, I guess, get to the point of, of consciousness, awareness, and so on, they need to act coherently. A concert. Yes, there has to be a, to concert. be a concert. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So right. Right. This right. level. I mean, the heart. It's well known. You can uh, uh, electroshock the heart, but for the brain, I, I'm here not that point. Wow. Okay, so so other so, than in the film World War Z, mm -hmm. where the zombies somehow could move really fast, if memory serves, yeah. most zombies portrayed are kind of slow-moving, and they even are a little bit dim-witted. And mm -hmm. so the implication there... They're tired, man. They've been dead. They've been dead. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah, give them some slack. <laughs> a little tired. Don't give them a trigonometry <laughs> exam. <laughs> so, so what it says is the restoration of life um, in these movies is possible, but it's a lesser version of what it was before they got... Always. So what we learn is that in a zombie state, they still function, but in a, in a diminished condition, not only physically, but also neurologically. So mm -hmm. is there some... Uh, in your organs and in, in the brain, does it like work fully or can it? can there be... Is there a spectrum of how it could perform once you uh, reanimate them? Let me just start with David. Wow. Could, could it half work? So that's that's a good, like, do we want them to half work? Uh, that's also the question. Uh, because what's the point? If uh, Let's say we want to, All right. if the goal of our, our studies to recover the organs to be able for transplantation, like, you don't want to make them half work and then, because nobody would like uh, to have that heart or the kidney or the liver, they're just hard Correct. working. So, but maybe, mm -hmm. maybe this is just like a, a one step. We have this analogy in our lab like, if you break a leg, first you need to, you're not going to run the next day. There's, you know, uh, like a, a, a time period where you need to recover first, start walking again, and then able to run after, after some time. David, I hate to be the mm -hmm. first to tell you, but that saying is not deep. <laughs> if you break your leg, yeah. you're not going like, to walk the next day. So. I know. We, we say it like this. If you, you crawl before you walk. <laughs> yes. so, uh, that's kind of, that's kind yeah. of how we say yeah, it. No, but, no, okay. uh, I get it. Yeah. You guys are scientists. Okay. You're in a lab. Yeah. You got to make things yeah, difficult. Yeah. You got to make it difficult. Yeah. Uh, I get all it. Right. Okay. So wait, let me ask this then, because Neil just brought up a super fascinating point uh, when you talk about coming back uh, on, a, on a spectrum. With respect to consciousness, how much of consciousness is agency? If you were to come back, but like halfway, that's is that you? I mean, like, are you still really you? And how much of being you determines what consciousness is? Ooh, ooh. Because by the way, George, a third of the mornings I wake up, I ask myself, am I still me or am I someone else? I, I ask myself that. Just I know it's a damn. Little... You you getting deep in the morning, man. <laughs> that's how you start your. No, mornings? I never really needed coffee. That's just that's my oh jump my start God. thought. I start my morning like this. <laughs> oh Jesus, I got to do this again. <laughs> I wake up and I just say, "Am I still me?" And wow. so, is there some minimum expression of the brain function where someone can say, "Yeah, I'm still me." Right. Taking it out of the realm of zombies, we 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 try to probe this with inducing reanimation from anesthesia in the experimental setting where we are stimulated with electricity or we're driving a certain set of neurons and we see behaviors that emerge. And we've asked the question actually in these terms, are these zombie rats now? They're, they're, they look, they look oh. awake, but do they have phenomenology that's associated with that, that wakefulness? Right. Uh, we think about it with the emergence of patients from general anesthesia. What, what's that minimal or self that is emerging and, and that process of the, the self reconstituting after an anesthetic leads to very similar questions. Is this the same person emerging as, as the one that went right. under? So I think uh, not addressing the, the really big questions, but utilizing anesthesia as an experimental model can help get at some of those questions of the emergence of the self and the, the, 
the pathway or trajectory of that self reconstituting. Wow, that's crazy. Because even if you just were to stop certain parts of the brain from talking to one another, you could dramatically change someone's personality and make them kind of feel like I'm I'm not really me. I would never do that. You know, like I I would never do that. And you know, and they're doing. We it. interviewed Oliver Sacks a few years back. If you're interested, you can check out our archives. And what we learned in that interview, because he has he's has he suffers if I. Can use that word. The condition of is it face blindness? He he does not recognize faces. Whatever the word is for that. And mm-hmm. I shouldn't use the word suffer because I asked him uh, if you could go back and take some magic pill and remove this affliction, would you? And he said no, he wouldn't because the fact that he had that affliction is what sent him on this journey to study neuroscience. And he published books. Mm-hmm. He's got a feature movie made after him. My question to you is. Well, I learned that at one point he looked in the mirror and did not recognize who he was looking at. That's how severe that face face blindness manifested within him. And so are we to say that something broke in his consciousness? Yes. Well, I mean, this gets uh, back to, um, you know, Chuck's earlier point, which is there's so much that we take for granted that is all wired and encoded and processed. I mean, we just assume that if we see our base, we know it's ours. There's some people who can't recognize that, you know, the hand that's attached to them is theirs, that that body ownership is disrupted. So the conscious experience is there. You seeing the face, the patient seeing their hand. Now we're getting to another level of self. This is me. This is my hand. This is my face. And so there's a there's really a spectrum of conscious experience from that foundational just sensation of the world, a sense of self, and then putting all that together. Wow. By the way, if I just want to say, if you smoke enough marijuana, you can look at your hand and it's not yours anymore either. <laughs> Doc, I wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Says the man who runs the psychedelic the institute. psychedelic <laughs> institute. <laughs> so so George, I say publicly and tell me if I'm out of line here that first, the brain barely works well enough to interpret objective reality so that when people start stirring in chemicals, the, the assumption that somehow they have a deeper understanding of reality, from, my, from where I stand, cannot possibly be true. It might be some different reality, but not an objective reality. So the psychedelics that you pre- presumably study as founding director of the Psychedelic Institute, uh, what would you say is the long-term goal of that? Because it can't possibly be, let me ask the person on LSD what's really happening here, and that will advance my sci- the scientific frontier. Mm. Yeah, so I, I look at psychedelics in the same way that I look at anesthetics. They're, they're tools to manipulate consciousness, allow us to study the brain and study perception. Anesthetics help us modulate the level of consciousness. Psychedelics help us modulate the content of consciousness. By the way, I don't know if you knew this, but alcohol also influences your state of consciousness. Just in case you didn't know that, I thought I'd put that in your your list. Absolutely. That goes goes along with the anesthetic, actually. Acting on very similar systems. So I think Mm -hmm. these are tools. Um, You know, I I don't uh, romanticize or stigmatize research with psychedelic drugs. Uh, We need to be rigorous. We need to be responsible. For me, it's really about understanding the brain, not um, using this as a tool to understand uh, reality. Now, some would argue that your your phrase objective reality uh, isn't meaningful because it's the brain that's that's generating this reality. That's it, those would be philosophers the, 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 who don't actually do science. <laughs> so uh, those those concerns do not oh, worry well, me. I mean, but you're talking about what's external. Correct. That's why we have machines. Excuse me. No, that's why we have machines to make the freaking measurement. Okay. Then we all gather I'm around go- the machine and say, "Do you all agree what this machine says?" And we say, "Yes." And it didn't depend on whether you had coffee or whether someone else. Uh, okay, with how awake you were. I agree. But and the but more you do I'm this, is all- the closer you are to an objective reality, to the point where it repeats often enough, you move on to the next problem. So, however, that is always external. 
okay, the measurement, the only way the measurement can be made is because it is external, okay? The only way it can be observed, there are some realities that are not measurable. Not yet. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we got to land this plane here. So, oh, no, so, this is too much fun. Uh, George, again, you you were with the University of Michigan. David, you're with Yale University. Great to, uh, I, I have an academic soul, so I, I love uh, reaching out to the resources that reside within the nation's universities. So thanks for being on Star Talk. Thank you. And Chuck, always good to have you, man. Always a pleasure. This was fun. All right, this has been Star Talk. This is a Halloween edition. All right, Neil deGrasse Tyson here, your personal astrophysicist. As always, keep looking up. 